Hi, guys, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Amy Hollenkamp, and today we're going to talk about what IBS actually is and what it is not and what sort of confusing world you've landed yourself into because IBS doesn't actually tell you a whole heck of a lot, right, Amy? So we're going to cover you know, all of what this name actually does tell you and what it does not tell you. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get started with that. Yeah, I'm ready to dive into it. Were you ever diagnosed with IBS? I know you had gut issues. Not as such. I basically like I was such a mess as a kid with like ear surgeries and such that by the time I reached like 20, I was kind of done with the medical world to some extent. So Mm -hmm. I would go in for like, you know, pap smears and sinus infection medications. But beyond that, like I really didn't go see anybody. Mm. Um medically speaking for quite some time and I just kind of managed stuff on my own so I never actually got a diagnosis of IBS but looking back I mean I would have definitely met Rome criteria so they would have labeled me with it if I had brought that up but um but no I imagine that you had received that label at some point right yeah buddy I I definitely received the IBS diagnosis um Yeah, when I first was having the major flare-up of my gut issues, I went the conventional route. I think most people typically do to start out. Um, I think some people go the integrative route, too. But I just think most people, I hear, you know, I went to my GI doc or was referred to a GI doc. And they tested everything under the sun. Bingo. By conventional standards. So maybe they did an endoscopy, a colonoscopy, did some blood work. They didn't find anything. And then they were just like, oh, you have IBS. And were kind of sent on their way. That was basically my ex- exact experience. I did yeah. some basic basic testing, um, some blood work, didn't have celiac, didn't have Crohn's. I wasn't dying. I wasn't bleeding internally yeah. or anything like that. There wasn't anything seriously wrong with me that they could see. So was given the IBS diagnosis and And sent on my way. And what was the, you know, emotion on your end when they gave you that that diagnosis? Did you know in your heart of hearts at that time, not really being in the medical field yet, did you know like, hey, that sounds kind of like bullshit? Or were you just like, (laughs) oh, I guess this is a thing. And then you went on your merry way. Yeah. I mean, for me, because I was an analyst... And because I was an analyst working a job where my whole job in life at that time revolved around solving really complex issues, like to me, it made absolutely no sense right from the get go. Um, And that's just, I think, me in general, like I'm a curious person, it didn't make sense that this could just be chalked up to IBS. And then with very, once you're sort of thinking that way, there's so many different alternatives opened up. Um, but I think the key there is that I was thinking really critically about the diagnosis, whereas I think I think a lot of times there's an acceptance and almost a relief that like, okay, like at least have a label of what yeah. what my symptoms are, which I think again, like some people just get to to where I was a little bit more down the line. So I, I was happy that like I sort of, didn't necessarily accept the diagnosis right away, but I could totally yeah. see why someone would be like, oh, I guess I just have IBS. I'm going to have to like figure out a way to manage this. This is a lifelong thing. So I could definitely see going down the other road too, but I'm thankful that I didn't. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of the times too, there's this assumption that, you know, if you're giving a 
uh, if you're given a diagnosis or given a label in the medical world, for most things, there is some sort of an answer for it. It yeah. might not be a good answer, but usually there's going to be some sort of a drug or some sort of a something that they tell you, sure. hey, you have this label. Here's what you do now. And with IBS, I mean, that kind of happens, like depending on what type, you know, you might get prescribed Lidzess or something to make you poop better, um, some sort of Band-Aid for your symptoms, um, or maybe like an antidepressant. I've seen the gamut as far as medications that are prescribed for yeah. IBS specifically. Um, but that's always the hope is like that a label will lead to action or Correct. understanding or a medication or a dietary change, something. And I find that that's often lacking with people who get IBS as a diagnosis. Is it just like, okay, later? <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember too, like, I think with IBS, like, typically right when you get diagnosed, and this is usually what I've seen, um, but it was very true in my case. It's like, you know, take Metamucil or like take Miralax or just like very basic over the counter type stuff. Yeah. And then I feel like if you're, continuing to pester the GI doc, continuing to have issues, they might go to the more medicine route. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely a crapshoot huh. in terms pun. of, I know, pun, pun intended, um, when it comes to, to the IBS diagnosis. It's, it's just such a hard world to, to work through if you're if you're just sticking the conventional route, there aren't that many options opened up to you. And that's yeah. that's a really big shame. Yeah. And, you know, to their credit, I think that this is where I think that GI doctors are frustrated by IBS because I think on some level, those individual doctors know that it is a bullshit diagnosis and that it's not really <laughs> giving a lot of hope or answers. So yeah. thankfully, you know, we're getting at least... Like, it kind of sucks in a different way, but, like, we've been talking, I don't remember if it was on a podcast or when we talked on the phone recently, like, the idea that GI doctors are recommending the low FODMAP diet, for example, and yeah. not necessarily coordinating with a dietitian or a nutritionist, and not necessarily, like, making sure that people are nutritionally replete, but even just the idea that they're giving that as an idea in the, you know, 10-minute appointments or whatever they have to spend with their patient in a way that's kind of like hopeful and I feel like they're trying to move in the right direction of like, all right, these people with IBS need some sort of answer. And like I read yeah. one meta-analysis or one study or I heard at a conference that low FODMAP was good. So, okay, cool, low FODMAP. And that's not the best way to go about it. There needs to be some degree of supervision and, and check-in and making sure that again, you're not deficient in something and that you're reintroducing foods appropriately. Um, but, you know, I think that a lot of these GI doctors are kind of looking for something, if nothing else, to get you out of their hair and to get those patients <laughs> out of their office so that they can spend their time yeah. with, you know, the endoscopies and the colonoscopies. Um, but, yeah, it really yeah. is just like a door to nothingville for a lot of people with IBS because the typical GI route doesn't have a ton to offer for the most part. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I could – I don't think any doctors – I think a lot of times – because there's so much fr frustration from a patient side of things, I know a lot of my clients are like, I hate my GI doctors, like, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I don't, I think, again, like, there's, they're trying the best. I mean, they're in a system that's, has a lot of issues. Broken. Um, yeah, exactly. And they're not really taught lifestyle strategies. 
so they have a lot of limited limited um, what's the word I'm looking for limited strategies that they can utilize and if they're not really versed in a lot of the lifestyle practices they they can't really help I mean it's it sucks I wish it wasn't that way Um, and I'm sure that the GI docs wish they probably knew a little bit more I hope at least that they wish they knew a little bit more and could give more time dedicate more time and energy towards IBS clients yeah but just the way it is now I, I think just understanding that that they're working in a broken system and if there are more they're kind of concerned about more serious issues or in their minds more serious yeah. even though IBS could be extremely serious yeah. and, and really could, the symptoms up. could be debilitating but exactly 100 percent. you know um, in their mind you know if you have ulcerations and bleeding in your colon that's going to take top priority not necessarily yeah. somebody who's bloated and having diarrhea to the point where they can't leave their house yeah for sure and i i do think that there's definitely i think one thing we haven't talked about yet which i'd be interested to get your take on i do think that gi docs also can be very pro like oh there's a brain gut axis component but then making it making it more about how like your stress anxiety is driving the gut issues uh which certainly could be the case that's not wrong if stress and anxiety is there but it could certainly be the other way around where the gut imbalances and debilitating issues are driving the stress anxiety and then it's just a vicious cycle yeah but i i do think that there's like there's another darker issue here too where i feel like the docs are like oh it's just it's all in your head bingo and that's extremely dismissive and, and frustrating awful. and yeah wretched i think would be the use i would use yeah it, for sure and that was going to be my point is that i i think when you initially said that gi doctors acknowledge the gut brain axis internally i was like do they <laughs> But that as soon as you mentioned anxiety and stress, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, they totally do. And I didn't put that together. But you're right. I A lot of people and a lot of my patients who have gone the GI route first come in. And my problem, more often than not, is the way that people have these conversations. Yeah. And again, in like this medical world where you get 10 minutes with a patient and then you have to go on to the next colonoscopy or whatever, they literally have enough time to tell you, like, it's just your stress, it's just anxiety, whatever, here's a script. And it comes from this really, like, judgy place where I think a lot of people yeah. start feeling like, well, shit, like, nobody in their right mind would do this to themselves and make a conscious decision to do this. And, like, obviously, I'm not a crazy person. So, no, I'm not just stressing myself out into having migraines or stressing myself out into having IBS. Like, I'm not that dumb. If I would have figured that out... And rather, like, I talk about the gut-brain axis and stress and anxiety with all of my patients, but I approach it more as, well, first of all, if you're a human being and you're alive in this day and age, you have stress, just point blank. Unless you don't have a job and you're just like a millionaire (laughs) that you inherited all your billions from your parents and you've never worked a day in your life and you just live like at a beach (laughs) 
and you like sit out in the nude every day getting a tan and not working and you know you're you're eating farm fresh food and just living the life of luxury unless you have that life you have stress it's just a matter of how much you're consciously aware of it and how detrimental it is but a if you're breathing you have stress but b a lot of it is stress that you're not necessarily always aware of and mm-hmm. I've had a lot of those moments in my life where I was tremendously stressed and I was just like balling it all up in a wad and shoving it down in my body. <laughs> and I was telling myself that I was tough or, yeah. you know, whatever bullcrap we're telling ourselves these days. And if somebody had told me in that moment, like, well, you're stressed, I probably would have told them no. Um but I jokingly call it crispy adrenals or crispy vagus yeah. nerve with a lot of my patients. I love that term. And a lot of the herbs, for example, or a lot of the things that we would do, like meditation, that are good for the adrenals are also fantastic for the gut-brain axis. Um, yeah. But, you know, you've got to sure. just approach it as like, hey, there's no judgment. It's not that you're like a crazy person for letting <laughs> stress affect your body because literally everybody that's going to be the case is just to the degree is going to be different for the person and like in what way it affects you is different for every person but starting to unravel that stress chemistry and have you know some sort of practices or some sort of tool in your tool belt that helps you unravel that stress um can be tremendously helpful and no it's not that you're crazy and it's not just that you're anxious there's more to it yeah no 100 percent. i mean um i think that the uh, having some sort of stress management tool because stress management like what you're saying is never going to go away and unfortunately i feel like our society also is very praises stress and praises being totally super busy and giving 110 percent like things that are so unrealistic we can't do it all but yet our society sort of pushes this idea on us that we have to do it all and that we have to be everything to everyone um, and that's what tends to get a hold a lot of value in our society is like being super busy and all that stuff. And I, yeah. I always tell my clients like it's really hard to value rest when our society doesn't. And I mean, I struggle with that. I'm sure you struggle with that too, totally. where there's weeks where you're like, oh my gosh, like I need rest. Like I'm tired. Yep. Um, and I think again, like in the GI space, that's why it's so it feels so dismissive to be like oh it's your stress because everyone is stressed and if it it was stress don't just necessarily start an ssri right away yeah maybe try stress management or try some of these lifestyle factors first and see where you're at yeah um so yeah. yeah i mean it it really runs the gamut and again it's i think it's the tone it's like if your provider is approaching it as a judgy dismissive like if they're using it as an excuse to basically politely tell you that you're a crazy person and please get out of their (laughs) office then you probably need another provider but if it's more of like just an open dialogue of like hey this is like a human thing I'm only like I tell my patients all the time I'm not perfect I'm still you know do I exercise as much as I should or meditate as much as I should or do I eat a gluten-free brownie sometimes totally but it's we're all trying to find our balance and what does and doesn't make an impact for our bodies um and it's not you you don't strive for perfection and it's not like a you know slap on the wrist like oh bad on you for letting your stress 
you know, affect your body, it's yeah, no, part not of the at human all. experience. But yeah. I want to dovetail back to the original conversation, too, which was, so what is IBS? And I know there's, we'll talk about it in a minute, that we're starting to almost move away from the way that it was traditionally diagnosed. But for you, you hit the nail on the head. They ruled out what seemed like everything else. So they ruled out Crohn's, colitis, celiac disease, you know, whatever else. Yeah. And if they didn't see anything visually on an endoscopy or colonoscopy, and if there wasn't something measurable in blood work that they could identify, like transglutaminase antibodies for celiac disease, then that's basically where you land. It's like everybody else must have IBS. And what ends up happening is that there's all these people with different things going on who all get this umbrella crap term that actually tells you very little about what's going on. It's kind of like when somebody goes in with signs of depression and they're told you are depressed. It's like, well, I could have told you that. You just <laughs> you just parroted back the exact symptom I told you that I have and yeah. created a diagnosis code for it. Um, yeah. My bowels are irritated. What? Yeah. So I would have I could have told you that the diarrhea told me that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's kind of like it is crazy. It, it's totally a. a a junkie type diagnosis that doesn't provide super valuable information. Well, for the patient or the provider, because I'm sorry, yeah. just, just the diagnosis of IBS doesn't actually tell me what medication or supplement or herb or thing would be profoundly impactful for you. Now, like things like stress reduction techniques and meditation, like that's going to be good for literally all humans. Exercise is good for pretty much all humans. So there's the broad things. But as far as like getting to the specifics of like, you know, people will ask me at events sometimes, like, what supplement do you recommend for IBS? And I'm like, uh, none. Because like, <laughs> that's not enough information for me to make yeah. an herbal recommendation. Um, but what would you say, you know, we'll got to go through bit by bit. What, what would you say is the most common cause of IBS? If we had to do our own little like data collection now, what would you put as number one, do you think? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I try. Well, and it's so hard because all the systems are so interconnected. So that's sort of tricky. For me, again, I think brain gut access dysfunction, some sort of issue, being sort of chronically stuck in fight or flight. Um, and I think there's a lot of tie-in with like the adrenals and the brain gut access yeah. and how it affects dysfunction in the gut. Um, so for me, again, I think it's like sort of like chronic fight or flight, mm -hmm. but then there's all the, this, there's can be effects with the brain gut, like in the gut with the nerves. Yeah. Um, so those are probably the two biggest things. So like some hormonal dysfunction, um, some brain gut access dysfunction, and then probably like just dysbiosis broadly. Yeah. Again, there's maybe specific details within there yeah. but imbalances in the gut somewhere i'd say those are probably like the three most common that i typically see yeah. um and yeah so i guess does that answer your question yeah. what what would you i think what would you say i think sufficiently enough and like so if i was put on the spot like you just were i probably yeah. would have <laughs> done a little bit more of a knee-jerk reflex to SIBO. But then the question then becomes, mm. well, SIBO isn't a root cause for diddly squat. Correct. So then yeah. you trace it back. And I think that you hit the nail on the head. It really boils down to some component of the gut-brain axis, 
slash maybe the adrenals, slash maybe the enteric nervous system. But basically, something is affecting the neurology and the signaling in the gut. And basically, I think it really boils down to motility issues at large is going to be how all three of those tie in. Is that if... Yeah, for sure. For those of you who are new to this world, motility is just the movement of the contents of your digestive tube from mouth to anus, never the other way. That's really the magic sauce. Um, Well, and I also think those connect just from a digestive, like a digestive capacity point of view too. So like, again, the brain gut access and and the adrenals are going to affect what and how many enzymes are being produced and bile flow. Stomach acid. Exactly. So, I mean, again, I think basically most SIBO and IBS boils down to like an insufficiency in motility or and or an insufficiency in digestive capacity yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Um yeah, but I think I think we're kind of on the on the same in the same wavelength when it comes to the root yeah. causal issues. Yeah. And I will I will say too with the SIBO scenario, um we were talking about this before we jumped on the the podcast. Uh and we could maybe do you want to jump into this now yeah, about like yeah. SIBO in conjunction with IBS? Yeah, I think that would be the time. Yeah, so SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, it's basically, again, as the name says, when there's an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestines. Um, and that's oftentimes, especially in the functional integrative space, what what I view it as a subset of IBS, but oftentimes it it's sort of equated to IBS in the, in the functional integrative medicine space. Um, Cause there's a, there is a decent proportion of IBS patients that have SIBO and there are definitely differences in my opinion. I don't think everyone that has IBS has SIBO. Um, But again, some of the, the, I still think that both SIBO and IBS have a lot of the same root causes. So an insufficiency in digestion and motility is still there with IBS yeah. and SIBO. It's just if you have that dysbiosis imbalance in the small intestines as yeah. well, in addition. Um, is that sort of your understanding too? Yeah, and I think it's all kind of a, a spectrum of sorts. Um, and you lightly yeah. touched on something, and I don't know if it was intentional, But this is a pet peeve of mine, and we'll talk about this more in a subsequent episode, but especially in the conventional world, but also definitely in the integrative and functional medicine and naturopathic space, there's this, this, um, I think on some level, we hear the word overgrowth, and we equate that with an infection. And therefore, the strategy from basically all the SIBO experts, aside from maybe you and me and two other people, (laughs) And gastroenterologists and whoever else, the knee-jerk reflex then is to over-prescribe antimicrobial herbs or antibiotic drugs. And really, it's not just an overabundance of bacteria in the small bowel, although that's, you Mm -hmm. know, a component of it. But oftentimes, the type of bacteria that are found in the small intestine is also out of balance and wonky and dysbiotic. So it's also, we could call it small intestinal overgrowth and dysbiosis, but it wouldn't really roll off the tongue quite as nicely as SIBO. Um, So there's also that component of like just dropping an A-bomb on it and hoping for the best time after time is probably not going to get 
the clinical effect that you want it to have. And it's not going to be the end all be all for your symptoms. Typically, it's there's more to it than that. You have to work on the dysbiosis component of it and not just focus on obliterating the bad stuff, quote unquote. Yeah. And you've probably heard this, too. And I I've probably early on wrote something very similar. and, And I thought something very similar was like, oh, the small intestines, it's supposed to be very sterile. And there's no bacteria in there. I, I don't know how many people I've heard say that, yeah. like experts, quote unquote experts, yeah. but there's a there's a microbiome in your small intestines that has to be balanced. And I, I do think a lot of that over-prescribing, bomb, only focusing on clearing has to do with this idea that we're not really hurting anything because it's supposed to be sterile. We're just kind of clearing everything out. Yeah when it's so much more delicate than that. Yeah. Um, and it's really a bummer, but I still I still hear that phrase all the time. Like, oh, the small intestine's supposed to be sterile. I've heard my clients say it too. Yeah. And I just, no. has that is that something you hear or have heard? I know I've heard it at some point before and you're totally right. Like it's practically <laughs> no part of your body is truly sterile. Like exactly. we used to think that there was no bacteria that lived in the bladder. And now we know that there is a small microbiome that lives in a normal bladder. It's only like 30 yeah. microbes that live in there. But even the bladder has a microbiome of its own. Your eyeball has a microbiome of its own. Like yeah. literally every surface of your body has a microbiome. And to think that like you're adjusting all this food and drink on a daily basis and you know, like putting your toothbrush in your mouth and your finger in your mouth and that you're getting exposed to bacteria from the oral cavity, swallowing that, and then magically somehow it's not going to get into the small intestine is a little um, inaccurate. Now, hopefully a lot of your bacteria are getting killed off with the stomach acid barrier. And that's another great podcast episode that we could do is all about stomach acid. But it's not to say that every single organism is going to die for sure. There's still going to be some that gets through. And there are the residents that already live there and have already colonized the small intestine to begin with. Um, and that those are your resident microbes that should already be there. It's not that it's sterile on a day-to-day basis. Um, but yeah, I do think that some component of dysbiosis, which is the imbalance between, and I'll use air quotes, the good and the bad critters, and that could be good and bad bacteria, good and bad parasites, good and bad yeast, good and bad viruses called bacteriophages, which we're just like starting to understand in this day and age. Um, just an imbalance of the good and the bad and the neutral creepy crawlers in your gut, whether it be in the colon or the small intestine specifically, that's a really huge component of IBS for a lot of people. And then also, like we were talking about, some breakdown in the gut-brain axis and the digestive juices and the motility and those uh, those checks and balances that should keep your motility and your digestive process moving smoothly uh, and keep everything moving from mouth to anus and never in the other direction. I think those are two of the biggest things that cause IBS. Yeah, and and I think all those, the digestive motility um, processes help to really regulate the environment and what bacteria oh, is growing. And so, no, you're totally, we're on the same page for sure when it comes to the, the SIBO space and, and how there can be an excess of killing versus repair yeah. and, and a really deeper dive into what the root causes are. And a lot of them, like we were mentioning earlier, are very consistent with what the IBS root causes yeah. are. Um, 
And yeah, so go ahead. Well, I was going to say, too, have you seen any cases where scar tissue or adhesions is a root cause? Because that's another one that we haven't really talked about yet, is how the inability for your intestines to move properly can be a root cause for either IBS or SIBO for some people. Uh, have you seen that also with your clients and your clinical work? Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely seen it. Um, for me, again, I think there's like so much benefit and I'm very intrigued by some of the videos that you've posted with the uh, abdominal massage. Mm-hmm. I've never sort of been trained on the abdominal massage or how to do it. So it's really cool to see you doing your thing with that. Um, most of the time, uh, I'll have, I'll refer people to like PT, mm-hmm. physical therapists, um, that know visceral manipulation, yeah. things that can break up the adhesive tissue. But I mean, yeah, adhesions can definitely be at play for certain people. It's usually something like where, and I don't know how you tend to approach it, but I'll try to approach some other more like, if there's obvious things out of whack, Mm. I might approach those first that I could specifically know I'd do a good job covering. And then if we kind of do those, if we cover the bases and there's still issues, adhesions is definitely something that I explore more. Yeah, like if push comes to shove, you'll send them out for that. And I- Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, covering things like the brain gut access, stress hormones, um, you know, maybe balancing out the gut, uh, doing a lot of lifestyle diet changes, those sorts of things first. And then again, seeing where, yeah, where the chips are falling. Yeah. I, and I think that's a really reasonable approach, especially if you're in a profession like dietetics, where like you don't get that hands-on manual therapy like I did. Yeah. Um, now we didn't For get a sure. lot of that in chiropractic school. Um, like we learned, you know, palpation and how to do an ab- abdominal exam because we can be primary care providers in most states. Uh, but I did some of the visceral manipulation classes separately after chiropractic school because I wanted to know a bit more about that. And it is really interesting where. Cool. Um, yeah. And that's a component for every new patient that I see, at least who's local in North Carolina. I'll do at least a bit of like palpation and I'll listen to their gut and I'll try to get like an assessment as far as that goes. And I definitely have felt some restrictions. Like even last week, I saw a patient where we were considering SIBO as a cause for her IBS. And that was high on my radar. But when we went through her health history, there was no known like SIBO root causes that I would typically think of. And when mm-hmm. she told me about the locations of her abdominal pain and when I palpated, all of her pain was basically wherever the colon takes a 90 degree turn. So right down at like the, you know, the hip pointer bone on the right at the cecum where the, where the colon begins, another tender point right up underneath the rib cage on the right at the hepatic flexure, another one over at the splenic flexure under the left rib cage, and another point basically where the colon turns to turn into the sigmoid colon. And nothing, like no tenderness, no nothing in the middle of the abdomen. I was like, okay, this is fitting less of a SIBO pattern. For you, I'm more suspicious that you have something going on in your colon and there's more of a dysbiosis yeah. pattern in the colon. But I do try to do a bit of palpation and really rule that in or out because to your point, not everybody with IBS has SIBO and it can be on the radar. It should be part of the conversation. But if I'm not highly suspicious of it, then we don't necessarily have to go down that road. Uh, but yeah. I've seen cases where like two ladies come to mind, both of them had had IBS, quote unquote, 
for decades, like 25 or 30 years. And both of them said that it started after they had a C-section with one of their kids. Yeah. And later on, I diagnosed them with SIBO, but we speculated that they probably had SIBO for 25 or 30 years, secondary to adhesion and scar tissue. And for them, I immediately referred them out for visceral manipulation for those cases, because it was like, that just, it, I think that's really foundational for you. And then we're going to work on the other stuff too. Um, but there's definitely cases like that where nothing else is making sense. And like the timeline is, is just perfect enough that it seemed to happen after an appendectomy or after a gallbladder removal or after yeah. a C-section or an abdominal hernia repair. It's like this, it would be weird if it was anything else given the timeline. Um, yeah. And that's where just moving your innards around and trying to release some of that scar tissue and those adhesions can be really, really profound. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like, I was thinking if someone recently got diagnosed or has been having IBS for a while and they're listening to this, what would your first approach be in terms of next steps from an IBS standpoint? What, what would you tell them in terms of where to go from here? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And, and it puts me on the spot a bit, but I'm trying to think... Because, like, I'm trying to, my initial reaction was going to be, like, what would I look for clinically if that person yeah. came to see me? Um, but I don't know if that's the most practical way to approach the conversation. Um, from that perspective, assuming that they already have some working relationship with a GI doctor and they've already gone that route to some extent, I would recommend, honestly, I would recommend pushing for a SIBO test right out the gate. Um, yeah. Assuming that they probably have had all of the like colonoscopy, endoscopy kind of stuff going on. Um, I would screen for celiac disease if that hasn't been done already. Um, I would seriously consider things like lactose intolerance and really evaluating for that, especially if you are any ethnicity other than white people. Uh, Caucasian people, you know, rates of lactose intolerance are like, what, 30% for white people. So we've got it kind of made in the shade comparatively compared to African or Asian or Latino descent folks, where the rates of lactose intolerance are like 85, 90% plus in the population. Yeah. Um, if you are one of those ethnicities, I would strongly recommend evaluating for lactose intolerance or experimenting on your own to evaluate if that's a, a cause for you. Um, and then depending on what those tests come back with, you could explore other things. Like we haven't even gotten into fructose intolerance or you know, fat malabsorption and that sort of stuff. But I think out the gates, it would be really reasonable to at least ask for a lactulose breath test measuring both hydrogen and methane. And there's actually a new lab. Basically, it'll come out by the time we post this uh, that measures hydrogen sulfide. If you could get that triple gas uh, SIBO test, that would be great. If not, two is better than zero. Um, try to assess for that. And then see if your GI doctor will do a stool test and just evaluate for the more insidious things. Because I have done stool testing through LabCorp or Quest with people who come to see me and it turns out that they have Giardia or like yeah. one of the bad like enteropathogenic, enterotoxigenic E. coli's or Campylobacter or something real squirrely and clearly very bad. Um, even, you know, a GI doctor should be able to do some halfway decent stool test through LabCorp request, a SIBO breath test. And, you know, if you want to test for lactose intolerance, you could do that. Or you could just experiment with foods at home and see if lactose ticks off your gut. 
Uh, but those are the things I would probably ask your GI for first. And then depending on the results of that, you could explore further testing or possibly seeing an integrative doctor like myself. Um, but same question back to you. What would you recommend to those people who just got diagnosed and they're listening to us now, Amy? Yeah, I mean, for me, I'd probably want to try to get down to the basics. So once they've done all the, the initial testing, like what you're describing, um, I'd probably want to just make sure that they're covering things like stress management, that they're covering things like getting sunlight, um, which again, gets harder in the winter time. I do know people that are like, oh, my symptoms are, are better in the spring, summer and get mm. worse in the winter. It's like, you're probably moving a lot less. You're probably not getting as much yeah. sun exposure, you're probably sleeping worse. Um, but I think, again, the, the key areas would be movement, stress, sleep, um, yeah. trying to kind of hone some of these bigger areas that could affect gut function. I think diet as well, you can try some things there. I think the initial knee-jerk reaction is to go low FODMAP, which, again, you certainly could. I, I highly recommend working with someone if you're going to go low FODMAP, yeah. but I'd at least try to go more whole foods yeah. um, if you're not already. So again, sometimes I, I think trying some of these simple, yet I think harder to work in like and to be consistent with like um it's, it's from what i've seen in working with clients a lot of times it's harder for them to get stress management down um than it is for them to take supplements or you know oh, try totally. dietary dietary change yeah. so i think building that really strong foundation is super helpful for people as long as they can hang with it and again like what you were saying earlier it's help it's helpful just in general for health to yeah. control control and regulate stress to yeah move um to get sunlight to get sleep that's the thing like those things aren't going to harm anybody but yeah, they can exactly. be profoundly beneficial for so many people and i do want to rabbit trail just momentarily and tell a quick story which is Again, that the idea of managing stress is so tough because I think there's so many people who are like, but I'm not stressed or like, I'm not a crazy person. Yeah. And <laughs> it can be really hard to really like quantify or understand the stress response um, because all of us have been taught from a very early age to just like suppress it and ball it up and keep it closed up in our bodies. And, you know, stress reduction technique can look that can look different for everybody. So, you know, we'll talk about things like meditation or exercise, but even like, I know, you know, my husband as more of the type A between the two of us, he gets so stressed out if he has too many things on his to-do list. So in some weird way, like stress reduction for him is just like spending a weekend at home cleaning without me and our five-year-old to bug him. And like this weekend, I think was very meditative for him. I just took my, our five-year-old camping for two nights and I think just having us out of the house and having alone time and being able to like listen to Foo Fighters or whatever he wanted with speakers <laughs> on and just like do what he wanted yeah. was actually r reducing stress for him, even though he puttered and worked. Um, and I think even like for me as a person who has a hard time saying no, just saying no or blocking off my schedule for like a day can be really therapeutic for me. So. Stress reduction doesn't always have to take the cliche form of like meditation and exercise. But I'll share with you that when I started chiropractic school, 
uh, my school had an acupuncture program and a massage program. And I forget, I think there was another one. And I thought, hey, I've never gotten acupuncture before. This will be cool. And I heard it was good for like allergy, sinusy stuff. And I was a phlegm factory. Side note is because I was eating dairy. Um, and for me, that was a biggie. But at the time, I was like, I could get acupuncture for like $5 at the student clinic. Let's do it. And I went in, started off great. The, the intern was super nice, super chill. I'm not afraid of needles, so I didn't care. And she did some points. Um, she did a bunch of points, but I remember this point on my foot. And I can't describe it to you other than it felt like the floodgates opened up in a very weird, specific way. And I just started bawling and crying like a lunatic. And it wasn't particularly painful. It wasn't like she was scary or anything. Like I was perfectly comfortable with her, but I just started to freak out and cry and alarm this poor intern. It was probably her first day at the clinic. And it's like, I'm so yeah. sorry. And basically I laid there crying on the table for 20 minutes for my acupuncture session. And I went home and my roommates who were in the acupuncture program were like, how was it? And I told them it was horrible. I cried the whole time. They said, what point was it? And when I showed them the point of my foot, they said, oh, liver such and such. That Are you under stress? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? And they explained that in Chinese medicine, the liver meridian is in charge of basically filtering out emotional stress and bullshit in our lives and helping us process stress. Whereas in the Western medicine world, we think of the liver as like the detoxifying and processing organ for chemicals. So I said, it's, it's similar, but for stress in TCM. And it took all of that. And then my roommates both asking me, are you sure you're not under stress? And I had to consciously think, oh, I am. I had just moved to California. My boyfriend at the time, now husband, was in Arizona for his graduate program. I was in California, so we just started a long-distance relationship of three and a half years, we do, at least. My mom was in the hospital across the country in Massachusetts, and I couldn't go visit her because it was like the second week of school ever. And I fell off my bike and pissed off my low back, and I had chronic low back pain to begin with, and I re-injured my back. And I think there was something else too. And like, I just like bought a new used car and moved to California and started a new grad program. And it took all of that and the stupid acupuncture point for my liver meridian to realize I'm under a ton of stress and I was not at all aware. Holy crap. And then at that point, it kind of checked in and I realized, oh, I need to like take some time for myself and do stuff and I don't know, do craft projects or something. Um, yeah. But I'm definitely living proof that you could take a lot of stress, just bottle it up in a wad and keep it in your body until somewhere, somehow it releases. And thankfully for me, in that moment, it was acupuncture and it wasn't like a high stress situation elsewhere in my life. I would rather have the mental breakdown at acupuncture than not. Um, but just know that you, I felt perfectly normal and I was just telling myself I was... Uh, you know, it was like life, whatever. I'm not stressed. Yeah. And stress could impact you in pretty profound ways and you might not be consciously aware of it. Um, yeah. And I, I, I do think that a lot of the things that we normalize culturally, like I was talking about before, like not getting enough sleep, like mm -hmm. not getting enough sun, like all those things are stressful for the body. Yeah. Things that we tend to not think about, like... I think, again, we when we think of stress, we think of the emotional burden and sort of the amount of work we have to do, which is, again, all added to your stress bucket. But I think there's, like, some very hidden stressors with, like, 
lack of sleep, lack of sun, lack of connection. Like it can also be lack of things, not just things oh, yeah. piling on, if that makes sense. And literally the entirety of social media. Like Exactly. I have to take the Facebook app off my phone. I can't have it on there. Can't Yeah, it's, it's definitely stressful. Yeah. I can't imagine like side note and again you have a, a kid but just how kids like are operating in the world of social media now is is mind-blowing um i'm very thankful that that wasn't around when i was a kid yeah ditto facebook started the year i was a freshman in college so literally it was like i don't know i was like (laughs) it was the coming of age of facebook and for me at the same time it was very weird um yeah i remember when it was a new thing and not everybody was on it and it, it was it's weird to look back at that now but I think to wrap up, because um, I want to make sure we get you off the call in a timely manner, um, I, I'll share one more thing about the stress thing. And that is the metaphor I heard once at a conference that I use to this day. And that is that life is kind of like we're treading water in a swimming pool. And you could do that for a prolonged period of time, right? Like we could all tread water and just chill out there in the swimming pool for a while. But all of us are wearing backpacks. And there are going to be situations in your life and people in your life who are on the edge of the pool and they are perpetually adding bricks to your backpack. And there are other people and other situations in your life that will help you remove bricks from the backpack. And I use that metaphor a lot with things like adrenal support and herbs, but also stress reduction techniques. It's just like swim towards the people and towards the situations that help you remove bricks and swim the hell away from people who add bricks to your backpack. It Life yeah. is too short. Don't waste another moment of your time with people who suck the life out of you because they're just gonna weigh you down and then it makes that treading water so much more difficult and so much less enjoyable. And it's just, um, it, it's really profound. Um, yeah, just, no, I like that metaphor a lot. I, I sort of think of it as raising stress tolerance. Mm-hmm. But again, by moving towards the people that would take the bricks out of the backpack, yeah. you're raising your, your tolerance to stress. Yeah. And your tolerance to tread water for a longer period of time, potentially. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I like that metaphor. Marvelous. Well, I think, uh, I think that is a good place to wrap up for the day, though. So guys, until the next episode, we will see you soon. Uh, if you have any sort of comments or questions or topics that you would like us to cover in future podcasts, go ahead and link that or comment down in the doobly-doo. Uh, if you could rate us on iTunes or whatever podcasting device you are listening on, that would be tremendously helpful. And if you're on YouTube, if you could hit the subscribe button, like this video, and pop a comment in the comment box, that would also help us grow this podcast and make sure we bring you super awesome, valuable content and us two charming ladies on the regular. So uh, I think that's about a wrap. Amy, it was great talking to you again, and I'll see you in the next podcast. Yeah, keep looking forward to it.